Let's pray. Father, we come once more to you, and we ask that you would hear our prayers. Father, that you would meet us here this morning, help us as we look at our Lord in action, and as we see his methods and ways with his beloved. And Lord, we pray that you would give us insight, wisdom, understanding uh, as we see him test his men. And Father, may we learn from this, and may, Lord, we be strengthened in our faith as we encounter various trials that you bring our way. And Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking this morning at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. And when I think about the purpose of our gathering together every Sunday and the purpose of my ministry here, the purpose of the elders' ministry, the purpose of really every ministry that goes on at Calvary Bible Church, I often think of Paul's statement in Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that, and this is the, the point, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That is the objective of all that we do as a church. We want to so proclaim Christ, teach the word to our smallest children, to the oldest, in every venue the Lord gives us. We want to do that in such a way that every Christian at Calvary Bible Church is steadily growing towards greater conformity to Christ. That's our target in everything we do. And because that's our goal, we often talk about our responsibility in exercising faith, in putting off sin, and putting on righteousness. We often emphasize our role in the process of growth and change. Because we are convinced that that is not discussed enough, especially in a culture where Christian growth is often conveyed as let go and let God. Just let God take care of it. You just trust Him. He'll help you. He will help you, and you should trust Him. But we have a part to play. And so we often want to emphasize the part that we play in the change process. But this morning, we get to look at the process of growth and maturity from a different perspective. The emphasis of this passage is not so much on what the disciples needed to do in order to grow and become God's kind of men. The emphasis here is on what the Lord Jesus Christ does to help His men, His disciples, grow into Christian maturity. And what we're going to see is that in this text, one of the ways, one of the primary ways that Jesus facilitates the growth and change of his disciples is to send them various trials, tribulations, tests, difficulties. He sends these things to his beloved people in order to either prove their faith or to demonstrate 
the unbelief that's still lurking in their hearts. This is what Jesus does with these 12 disciples, and this is what he does with all of his disciples. To be a disciple is to be a what? A student, a learner. And if you are a Christian, then you are a student in Christ's school. And he has ways of bringing you along that you and I don't particularly enjoy. And we would do it otherwise, usually. But the reality is, is that our Lord has not asked us to give our input on the curriculum He chooses. He's the Lord. He's the Master. He's the Rabbi. We are simply His students, and He does with us and to us whatever He desires. The wonderful part there is that He only desires good for His people, and He only works with perfect wisdom. And so we're going to see that in this passage. Mark sort of pulls back the curtain for us uh, to see what Jesus is up to in the life of these 12 disciples to help them grow into maturity. And the reality is, of course, that this is what he's up to in your life as well. It looks different. Every trial is different. But every trial has the same intention. One, to prove your faith. like For you to demonstrate that you are believing Him, trusting Him, that you have learned the lessons of the past that He has faithfully taught you through His Word. Every trial will either demonstrate that for you. And you'll look back on it and you'll say, wow, praise the Lord that He has helped me to grow and become His kind of man, woman, or child. Sometimes a trial is the door of your pulpit falling off. (laughs) You never know what the Lord is going to bring. That was so weird. All right, let's get re- <laughs> recalibrated here. The purpose of every trial is that the Lord wants you to see that you've gr- learned and are growing. One. Or He wants you to see the unbelief that's still lurking in your heart. And to see it, not to make you miserable, depressed, discouraged, downcast, so that you give up. No, so that you will press on and your faith will be strengthened. And that's what we're going to see in the passage before us this morning. So why don't you stand with me, Mark chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 45. Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side to Bethsaida, while He Himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, He left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You may be seated. So this is essentially... Uh, This sermon is essentially an analysis or a a look, careful look 
at the test that our Lord gave these disciples. Now, what I want to do is, is point out three features from this test that are true of every test that you or I will encounter. A test here I'm using interchangeably with the word trial. A trial is a test. A test is a trial. And the first feature that we see in this test, perfectly administered by the Lord, is in verses 45 to 46, and it's this. Like all of our Lord's tests, this trial was perfectly staged. Perfectly staged. By that I mean that this test was not administered haphazardly. It wasn't just thrown together as Jesus is sort of shooting from the hip. No, everything that Jesus ever did and everything that Jesus currently does is perfectly intentional and deliberate. There are no wasted moments in your life. Everything is carried on perfectly staged by the Lord. As Pastor Dan put it when he preached, I think, from this text, trials are perfectly tailored, always perfectly tailored, to meet the need of the Lord's disciples. And we see that very clearly as we look at this passage. And of course, as we think about trials, we know that the Lord is sovereign over them. Nothing accidental ever occurs. The Lord sits above the circle of the earth and deliberately brings about the highs and lows and inconveniences of our lives. All of it orchestrated by a perfectly wise, good, sovereign God. And what we see in verses 45 and 46 is that the storm that these men get into is perfectly administered, perfectly staged by the Lord. Verse 45 says this, Immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side to Bethsaida, while He Himself was sending the crowd away. So I'm saying this is perfectly staged, and there are several phases of Jesus sort of prepping everything for this trial to come in exactly the right time and in exactly the right way. And so the text, verse 45, says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Now, immediately, that's immediately after what? The feeding of the multitude. We looked at that last week which was this amazing miracle of the Lord that was designed to prove that He was a mediocre shepherd. And he could do up to you know, this sort of level of difficulty, but then when it got beyond that, He, you know, he had to do something different. Not at all. The, trial, I mean, the, the miracle of the, the, the multi, multiplying of the loaves demonstrated that Jesus was truly the Psalm 23 great shepherd. Not only did his compassion exceed, extend, and encompass all the sheep, his little twelve and all the wild sheep on the shore, but he had the power and the ability to take care of all the needs that were present. And the lesson of the loaves is a lesson about the shepherding care, the protection, provision, and the limitless, boundless nature of the Lord. And so as Jesus is multiplying the bread, giving it to the disciples, and they're handing it out. That's the lesson that is to be learned. Now, Mark doesn't tell us 
how the crowds respond after Jesus has multiplied the loaves. It's interesting. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see this, the crowds responding in astonishment, amazement. But here, he doesn't say, give any commentary as to their response. But John does. In the Gospel of John, the parallel account, John tells us that the crowds did, in fact, respond to the miracle. And they responded in such a way that Jesus was able to look at them and he knew that they, John 6.15, they intended to come and take him by force to make him king. That was their response. Now, either they were you know, thrusting themselves towards Jesus or he was just able to perceive it within the hearts of the crowds. And, and they wanted to immediately sort of foist Jesus up on the throne and make him king. Now remember, Mark 6, we've looked at another king, a phony king, King Herod, who had a feast and a banquet. And he, was, he made everyone tell him that he was the king. And he would have jumped at this opportunity to get more glory for himself. But Jesus here understands that the crowds are motivated by something other than pure godly motivation. They're looking at Jesus as essentially a resource that will make their lives easier. And we see that also in John 6. They're looking at Jesus kind of like a come-as-you-go grocery store. Here's a man who can just make bread out of nothing. And if we make him king, then he could do that for us, and then we don't have to work again, and we could just live on the beach. And that's kind of the idea. If Jesus is uh, sort of crowned as king then our lives will get incrementally better. And of course, Jesus knows this. He calls it out in John 6. He recognizes their selfish motivation. And he understands that they're only after him because of what he can do for them. So his intention here is to get out of the situation as quickly as possible. That's what's going on here. The crowds want to make him king. Jesus is going to get out of here as quickly as possible. But what's so interesting is that the fastest way to get away from the crowds would have been disciples get in the boat, let's get in the boat, let's go. They could do it. They could have lingered out there for however long until the crowds got tired. Jesus could make bread out of thin air, so they would have been fine out there. He can calm the storms. They know that. They've experienced that. So Jesus could have taken the sort of quick, easy way here to get away from the crowds, but that is not at all what he does. Look at verse 45. He made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. That's really interesting for a number of reasons. One, the multiplication of the loaves happened near Bethsaida. So Bethsaida is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, it also happened near Bethsaida, but it was out in the isolated or rural areas. And so now Jesus says, go across to Bethsaida. So what that probably means is get in the boat and just sort of work your way along the shore to create some distance between you and these crowds that want to make me king. And if they can't make me king, they may come to you, Peter, and you'll probably say yes. So get in the boat, stay over here, and get away from the crowd. So as they're doing that, though, we know that the wind is contrary to them. So along the way, we'll see that they end up in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, far from 
where they were destined, where they were wanting to go, at least. They ended up exactly where they were destined to be. But they ended up far from where they wanted to go, the city of Bethsaida. And notice the language of verse 45. Jesus didn't just instruct them to get into the boat. He didn't even suggest it, and he didn't even command it. What did he do? He made them get into the boat, which is another way of saying he forced them to to do it. Now why? Why does he have to force these guys to get into the boat? Well, of course, the implication there is that for some reason they didn't want to get in. We don't know why. It could be that they were looking for that quick skyrocket move to the top. Here the crowds are. Let's get on the throne, Jesus. We can bypass the cross. We don't have to worry about any of that. Let's get it started now. And by the way, can I be at your right hand you know, when you are on your throne? It could be that they were really just wanting to be with Jesus. I remember that was the whole plan in the first place. When they set out across the lake, was Jesus said, come away with me and rest for a while. They still hadn't had their time to rest with Jesus, although they had a long boat ride with Jesus, and certainly they were able to talk. But at this point, it could be that they just wanted to be with Jesus. We don't, we don't know, but what we do know is that Jesus had to force them to get in the boat and to go on their way. It could be that they were, I mean, they were, four of them at least, were fishermen. They could have looked up at the sky and said, uh-uh, this is not the time to get in the boat. It could have been that. But at any rate, Jesus forces them to get in because he has a very deliberate purpose. He knows exactly what he is doing. So he puts them in the boat. Each of them, remember, will, would have had a full stomach. A full stomach. A little time with Jesus across the lake. And each of them would have had a, a door prize with them. A basket of bread. Excess from the feeding of the multitude. And so they're, they're set. And not only that, but they have just been taught a vital lesson about the man they're following around and calling rabbi. They have just seen in real life, once again, because they've seen it several times, that Jesus is certainly much more than a mere rabbi. He was a, the promised great shepherd of God's people whose compassion and power was boundless. And what Jesus is doing here is he's sending them out on the lake to see, for them to see, whether or not they've really learned that lesson yet. This is an exam. Do you really see that I am the great shepherd, I am your provider, I am your protector? Do you really see it? That is what is happening here. But remember, the disciples are, are totally unaware of this. They have no idea what's happening. They're just like, you know, they're in the boat. They're, they're not sure why Jesus is having them go out. They have no idea what the Lord is doing, which is often the case in our own trials, right? It just seems haphazard. It seems, what in the world is happening? This is so crazy. Life is, feels chaotic. That's to see difficulties not with the eye of faith. The eye of faith sees intentionality and purpose. So anyway, here, here are these disciples being pushed out into the water. Jesus bids them farewell, verse 
46. And then he leaves for the mountain to pray. All right, so those are the three things that sort of set the stage. Forces them to get in the boat, bids them farewell, sends off the crowds, and now he goes by himself up to the mountain to pray. Now why? What is the Lord doing? Well, if he was just wanting to escape the crowds, he could have done it. He's got something else in mind. And I think for me, as I've thought about this passage this week, this little line in verse 46, he left for the mountain to pray, has been the sweetest thought for me as I've thought about how the Lord trains his students. Jesus knows exactly what's coming for his men. He loves them. We've seen that already. He wanted to call them away to be alone with him, to refresh. He's caring for them. He's shepherding them. He's selected these 12 men to be his precious disciples. He loves them dearly, and he knows exactly what's coming for them. Scripture says that the Lord does not willingly afflict the sons of men. Meaning, it's not his delight to do it, but it's what's necessary if these men are going to be his representatives on earth. If they're going to truly function as ambassadors and representatives of Christ, they need to be tried. They need to be tested. They need to be refined. And the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. And so he goes up to the mountain to pray. We're not told what he prays, but we can know that he is certainly, part of his prayer at least, is certainly petitioning the Father for his disciples. We know that because this is his habit. We see that throughout Scripture. We see that in John 17. We see that in Luke 22. We see that the Lord steadily prayed for his men. And so I, I would... I'm convinced that as the Lord is on the mountain praying, His twelve men are on the forefront of His mind. And just like, or probably like, the way that He prayed for Peter in Luke 22, now He is praying for these men. Let me, let me read that to you. Luke 22, verse 31. This is the Lord, His interaction with Peter. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then notice in verse 33, listen, this is what Peter said. Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. You don't have to pray for me. I've got this. Don't worry about it. I'm right with you. We're going to do this together. I'm standing by your side. I am as you are. Let's do this, Lord. Right? I mean, clearly, Peter's self-confidence is not hidden. Right? His pride is on display. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows Peter's Heart. The Lord knows what's really going on inside of Peter is not faith, 
but pride and self-confidence. And so the Lord, in His perfect wisdom and kindness, has a way to break Peter of such pride. So the Lord looks at Peter and says, verse 34, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. You have denied me three times. The day is not going to end, Peter, before your pride and self-confidence is totally proven to be false and to be a demonstration, rather, of your unbelief. The day is not even going to be over before you realize that you are truly a fool and you need me. Jesus, in Luke 22, knew what was coming for Peter. Peter didn't know what was coming for Peter. But Jesus knew. And because Jesus knew that Peter's failure would grieve him to the heart, he told Peter, look, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I'm, I'm praying, in other words, I'm praying that your failure and the cowardice that's about to be revealed to you and before all the other people, that that failure will not lead your faith to fail as well. But that the failure will drive you to repent and strengthen you to stand up, not in self-confidence, but in faith and trust in me. Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus knows that these men on the lake are about to fall flat on their face. And so, undoubtedly, he's praying that their faith will not fail even though they are about to fail the test. And what's so amazing, and I think what struck me acutely about this was the statement in Hebrews 7:23 where the Lord says or the writer says that Jesus' ministry is that he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. He ever lives. This is what he does in heaven next to the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. He sends you into the storm. But He's committed to pray that your faith will not fail as you go through it. That is amazing. It was the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, who said, if I could but hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, he said, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And one way to make sure your faith doesn't fail in the midst of your trial is to remember that Christ is constantly, ever living, interceding for you as you struggle along and as you fail again and again. He is dedicated. Who are the people that pray for you the most? I'm just curious. Probably your mom. Probably maybe your dad. Maybe someone you're really connected to. The people that are most committed to pray for you are the people that love you the most, right? 
And the Lord is committed to pray for his people. With that, I mean, there's really no reason to ever question his care, his compassion, his oversight. So here we are, 12 men in a boat in the ocean, well, in a lake, really, uh, specially chosen by Christ, loved by him, probably at this point in the process or have begun to drift out to sea. They have no clue what the Lord is doing. Why did he send us out here? I knew I shouldn't have followed his advice. I saw the clouds. Who, who knows what they're thinking? But here they are in the storm, and the Lord is on the mountain praying. So that's the perfectly staged trial. All right? It includes difficulty, yes, certainly. But it also includes the Lord's prayer for you. Now let's look at the execution of the trial. Perfectly executed trials. That's how every trial you or I have ever experienced has gone through. It's been perfectly executed, formed, overseen by the Lord Himself. Look at verse 47. When it was evening, this was probably around 6 or 7 p.m., okay? Significant, right? It's that period of time right after sunset, but before it's very dark, right? So it's still a little light, but it's fading fast. So when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. How did it get there? Well, of course, the storm would have blown in on their little journey to Bethsaida, blown them, pushed them off course into the middle of the ocean, the, the sea, or really the lake. And the storm had become so intense that these men were forced to, verse 48, strain at the oars. Their straining at the oars was because if they didn't do that, the boat would have capsized. And they're also just trying to make some headway against the wind. It's interesting, the word for strain here means torture or torment. Or being tormented at the oars. So the picture is that the men are in anguish and are rowing as earnestly as they can because the wind and the storm and the waves are so high. It was really stick to the oars or end up at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, these four of these men were seasoned fishermen. They knew what it was like to be on the Sea of Galilee. So the, the torturous nature of this, the straining at the oars, uh, shows us that this was a very serious situation. And look at the end of verse 47. Where was Jesus? He was alone on the land. But notice also in verse 48, he wasn't just alone on the land praying, but, beginning of verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars. He was watching as they struggled. Talk about a comfort. He's praying, and he's watching. Fully aware of everything that is transpiring. None of it is a shock. None of it is unexpected. None of it catches the Lord by surprise. He's watching, perfectly observing it all. 
Now, that's amazing for a number, number of reasons, at least three. One, it's in the middle of the night. Jesus is on a mountain. At this point, it's probably, it could be midnight. They started rowing at about 7 p.m. And in verse 48, the middle of verse 48, when Jesus finally gets to them, it's in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's a long time to be rowing. You and I would probably be dead. I know I would be dead. I'll speak for myself. So at some point, I mean, it, I mean, it gets dark. Obviously, they start at 7, around 7. And by the time Jesus gets to them, it's 3 a.m., 6 a.m. But Jesus is able to look from the mountain and see through the darkness his men straining at the oars. Some have said, oh, well, it must have been a, a moonlit night. That's how they did it. Okay. Well, that's the first reason. Let me give you another reason this is amazing. The text says that their boat was in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Not only is it in the middle of the night, but the boat is in the middle of the Sea of the Galilee, which the widest part of the Sea of Galilee is in the north, which is where they are. It's eight miles wide. In the north. So if you take it literally, these men are something like four miles in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and it's nighttime. And they've been straining for something like 12 hours at the oars. But that's just two things. There's a third reason this is really amazing, and it's this not only is it nighttime, not only are they miles away inland. But it's also in the middle of a storm. <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes you can't even see, you know, 15 feet in the middle of a storm, right? Especially a storm like this that is torturous to these men in the boat. So the clouds, rain, wind by itself would have made it humanly impossible for Jesus to see from the mountain to see these men. Now, some have said, okay, well, that proves that you know, the Bible's not true, right? Clearly, Jesus couldn't see from the mountain. And so they say, it's, it's interesting, I wouldn't encourage you to read it at all, but they say things like, well, the boat must have been very close to the shore still, and the fog would have been so thick, and Jesus would have been far away, it looked like maybe it was miles away, but really it was just right by the shore. And these guys are straining to make some explanation, humanly, a human explanation. So either the Bible is not true, either Jesus was not the Son of God, or the point of this passage is to say, look, this man was no ordinary man. Right? Only God himself could penetrate the darkness of night, the miles of distance, and the storm itself to keep his eye on his people. And friend, that's the answer. And this is what Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is driving us to. Remember, Mark doesn't give us a lot of lessons that Jesus teaches. Mark takes us by the hand and says, hey, look at him. Look at him interact here. Look at him here. Look what he does here. And by the end of it, he wants you to agree with the centurion in Mark 15. Surely this man was the Son of God. That's the whole point. And Mark is sort of forcing us all to say, wow, this was the omniscient Son of God. Because only God has eyes that are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. 
Proverbs 15.3. Job 31. Only God is able to observe all the ways and steps of men. Zechariah 4.10. Only God has eyes that range to and fro throughout the entire earth in such a way that He is able to observe every detail of every man's life regardless of where they are and what their situation is. That's called omniscience. And certainly our Lord was man, fully man, but He was also fully and perfectly God. And as God, He could see every detail. Every detail. And what's more, he, not only could He see them straining at the oars, His vision penetrated into their hearts. He knows what they're thinking as they're struggling to row through this storm. He knows. Are they crying out to the Lord in their heart? Father, help us. Just like You multiplied the bread through Your servant Jesus' hands. Would You help us? Father, would You send Your Son here to help us, just like He silenced the storm before. Would You help us? He knows, the Lord knows, that that is not the way they're thinking. We're not told what they're thinking, but we are told that they are not exercising faith. Their hearts are hardened. Are they calling out to the Lord? Are they suspicious that Jesus has neglected them? I mean, what are some of the things that you think? in the midst of your trial. What are you tempted to think? It's probably the same thing I'm tempted to think. Right? Disciples are disciples are disciples. Right? We are far more like these precious men who are very slow to learn than we want to admit. We are often like Peter. And we say, Lord, though they all betray you, I will never leave. The Lord knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in your heart as you struggle through whatever trial He has decreed for you. Well, the Lord sees them. He knows them, sees their struggle. And He knows how they're responding, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And so He's moved to act. Really, to execute the trial. All of this is just sort of the build-up. The storm, the boat, that's just building up to the main trial, the main moment when the Lord walks by them. That's the test. What are they going to do in that moment? Of course, the Lord, to get them to that point, lets them struggle at the oars for something like 12 hours. And He gets them sufficiently exhausted, sufficiently rid of their self-confidence. So now they're able to say, okay, we actually need help here. We're about to drown. And so, in verse 48, the Lord comes to them walking on the sea. It's really, it's just amazing. And as I've worked on this passage, I keep thinking, you know, sometimes you do something and you know you're going to fail at it. You know, this is going to be, this is going to totally undersell the glory of this passage. You know, every time I, we preach or teach, we know... It's not going to be what it ought to be because the Bible is really glorious and wonderful. And so as I've read this, I've thought, there's no way to even do that justice from a human 
point of view. This is amazing. It's incredible. But if you jump up and down and put all these exclamation marks on it, it still doesn't do it justice to the wonder of what is happening. The Lord walks in front of these men as on dry ground. The waves are splashing. The wind is ripping. The guys are straining. And the Lord just walks up peacefully, walks right by them. It's amazing. Now we, and we kind of give them a hard time here, and I'm going to give them a hard time because Mark gives them a hard time. But man, this would be terrifying, right? Well, here they are. And notice verse 48. This is the execution of the test. Verse 48. And he intended to pass by them. That was his will. It was his intention. Right, this is like the culmination of the whole test. Everything has been building up to this moment where he is going to pass by them. Not in the sense that he was just trying to sneak by them, but he got caught. But in the sense that this is exactly what he willed to do. To pass in front of them in order to test them. The word intended or meant, is a word that means to will, wish, or desire. And what Mark is telling us here is that what Jesus did in walking by them was exactly what He meant to do. That's the point. It was exactly His intention. He wasn't trying to evade or sneak by them. That doesn't even make sense in the context of the previous pericope section. He's not trying to just let them drown out there. He meant to pass by them, right in front of them, so that they would see Him and either cry out for help, Lord, help us, or do what they did and shriek like a bunch of cowards. And really, the execution of this test, this passing by them, echoes what we see in Exodus 33, where the Lord passes by Moses. Why does the Lord pass by Moses? Well, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, okay, I'll do it. And so the Lord put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he intended to pass by Moses. We see the same thing with Elijah. Elijah, 1 Kings 19 He's on the run, full of faithlessness. He goes from conquering the prophets of Baal and being on top of it all to cowardly running in fear. And so the Lord passes by him as he's hiding in the cave. And really, it's a confrontation of him for his unbelief. But both of these men, Moses and Elijah, respond appropriately. The Lord passes by, they recognize, they see, they worship and obey. And interestingly, we're going to encounter Moses and Elijah again in Mark chapter 9 at the Transfiguration. So it's not incidental here that these sort of echoes are happening. But the point that I want to underscore is that Moses and Elijah recognized their God and responded to him in faith. Not so with these men. And really, the further point I want to make is that this was intentional. The Lord, just like He had done in the Old Testament, was intending to pass right in front of these men 
to see if they will recognize him for who he is and respond to him in faith. But notice how they respond in verse 48. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that he was a what? A ghost. You just think, what? They thought he was a ghost. Now, Herod, remember, he was trying to investigate who is this man, John the Baptist, or who is this man, Jesus, rather. And he said that he was John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Remember, Herod sort of thought Jesus was some sort of phantom or ghost. And now the disciples, they're sort of adopting Herod's view that Jesus, maybe he's like a ghost out there. Now, they don't think it's Jesus' ghost. They don't know that. All they're thinking is that this is a ghost that's right in front of us now, and they are terrified. All of that because they don't recognize Jesus for who he is. They were, they were exposed to him. They ought to have cried out to him for help, but they cried out in fear. Interesting, the word for cry out here is the same word described that describes the shriek of the demon-possessed man in Mark 1, 23. Remember, the, the demon in the synagogue recognized that Jesus is the Lord, and he could end their existence in a moment. And in panic, they shriek. And that's, that's what the disciples do here. They shriek. It's like a high-pitched squeal. That's driven by utter terror. Kind of like what you sound like when your kid jumps out from behind the counter. It scares you. No, it's way worse than that. This is a shriek that's not just a little fright, but an utter terror. And it wasn't just one of them that shrieked. So everyone looked and said, what was that, James? And it wasn't like that. All of them shrieked all of them saw jesus on the water and all of them cried out and all of them verse 50 says that they were terrified literally they were trembling in fear so that's the perfectly executed test and the perfectly executed failure by the disciples the test though was perfectly staged perfectly executed, arranged, but it was also perfectly revealing, right? It perfectly revealed what was going on in the disciples' hearts. And by the conclusion of the exam, these men have now proven, once again, that they are not learning the lessons that the Lord wants them to learn. Rather than recognizing him as Lord and crying out to him as the great shepherd and protector, they respond in fear and unbelief the entire time, it seems. And they are far, far, far from where they need to be. And in fact, this is just the beginning in Mark's gospel of a downward spiral that will actually culminate in Mark 8 with a very similar episode. Boat, bread, and a miraculous appearance, Mark 8, 14 to 21. It just reminds us that, you know, if you fail the test, 
You get an opportunity. The Lord sends the test your way. You fail the test. He'll graciously give you another opportunity with a very similar trial, right? Until you learn, right? And then, of course, there'll be more tests to help you progress into maturity. But the Lord is committed to your growth, and He's committed to these disciples. They are going to be His official representatives, and He's got to get them ready. And so He is committed to them, even though they fail. And so, the test is over, verse 50. Jesus immediately spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. These are gracious words and a very gentle response to their failure. He's not harsh when you fail. He's gentle. And he says, look, guys, it's me. <laughs> I'm not a ghost. Uh, don't be afraid. It is I. Literally, it's ego a me, which is I am. Which is an allusion to God's self-revelation in Exodus as well. Exodus 3.14, where the Lord tells Moses, I am who I am, or I am, I will be what I will be. And of course, Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John and through the, in the Gospel, identifies himself as the I am. And that's what he does here. I am I am. It is I. I am not a ghost. I am. And because of that, they should not be afraid. The word afraid here is phobeo, where we get our word phobia. It just means to be in an apprehensive state. And so Jesus says, don't be that way. Look, don't you know that I am the I am? I am him. I am your God. I am a great shepherd. I'm your protector. So take don't be afraid, but take courage. Take courage, which is a beautiful concept. That means to stand and act, even in the midst of great danger or trial. That's what courage is. It refers to a confidence, not self-confidence, but a confidence in God that presses you to action, even though the surrounding context is marked by danger and difficulty. That's courage. You're in a storm. Courage doesn't immediately get you out of the storm, but it does propel you to act even though you are afraid inside. Right? It compels you to do what you know God would have you to do and to overcome your fear and to obey the Lord. And, and what it would have done for these guys, it wouldn't have kept them from rowing. They had to row, or they were going to be in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. But they could have rowed in a way that was faithful. Right? Instead, they opted for unbelief, and they were terrorized and fearful and hopeless in the dark, damp circle of the Sea of Galilee. So, what should have characterized these men is courage and fearlessness. That should have characterized them. Rather than cowering in terror, they should have trusted that their rabbi was truly the omnipotent God. If they would have set their hearts on that and exercised their faith in that, they would have remembered that Jesus was entirely in charge. He was their protector, their provider. And this is what faith does. Faith 
And the unseen Christ is the antidote to cowardice and fear. But they have, well, they're marked by unbelief, and because of that, they are full of fear and cowardice. That's the characteristic trait of unbelief. Are you fearful? Are you cowardly? Well, I can tell you, it's because you are not trusting in the Lord, your great shepherd. And then verse 50 says that they were utterly astonished at what had transpired, which literally means they're out of their minds. And it's emphatic. To put a literal translation on it, it's something like this. They were exceedingly, profusely astonished at everything that just happened. And it's not in a good way. (laughs) Because look at verse 52. And they were utterly astonished. Why? Because, or for, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You see that? Their astonishment was not, wow, he's God and the protector and savior. We trust him. No, it was fear, trepidation, trembling. Because their hearts were hardened. They hadn't learned anything about the lesson that the Lord had just taught them with the loaves. Somehow they had been able to see Jesus multiply the bread, provide all the food for the crowds, and still not be convinced that Jesus was all that he said he was. Their hearts were hardened. I think they believe he's the Messiah, but their understanding of what that means is different than what it ought to be. And so they need to learn that he is not a capricious God who's just going to send them out to drown in Galilee. But he is their faithful shepherd who loves them. And in the days ahead, there are going to be storms and storms galore. Life is going to be hard. But the thing that's going to get them through every trial is their understanding that the shepherd, the good, great shepherd, is the one who has led them to it all. So Mark says their hearts were hardened. There was still rampant unbelief and pride within them. And the Lord, because He loved them, and that's the point here, because He loved them, the Lord was not okay with them continuing with this measure of pride and unbelief lurking in their heart. How would they know it if the Lord didn't reveal it to them? They wouldn't have known. How would Peter have known his own self-confidence and pride had not he betrayed the Lord? He wouldn't have known it. The trials demonstrate what is truly in our heart. But then notice, as we wrap this up, notice what Jesus does next. Notice how he responds to their flop. It's amazing to me. He, he, he showcases for them why they need to believe him. Right? He, he, he doesn't say, again, really? How many times do I have to tell you this? How many times do I have to multiply bread for you to get that I can do anything? Not at all. He, he just acts it out. All of the communication is basically his nonverbal communication. And the first nonverbal communication is profound enough to me as walking on water. He steps towards them and verse 51, he got into the boat with them. 
Now, I don't know how you feel when you fail, but usually, human nature, when we fail, is to run away. Right? We don't want anything. We don't want to pray. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to draw near to God because we think God is angry with us and doesn't want to come near to us. Here, Jesus looks at these, this boat of failures, really, and their failure doesn't repulse him. It draws him to get in the boat with them. Now, if it's you or me, and we're the Lord, we're going to look down and say, you, you pitiful people. I'm going to go walk on the water back over here to Capernaum. You're going to make it. Stop whining. Meet me over here. You know, if I fail, I'm often tempted to think that the Lord, you know, is disappointed. He wants nothing to do with me. He might cast me off. And certainly these guys are thinking, okay, he really is going to drown us now. <laughs> All right. He's going to drown us, wipe us off the face of the earth, and start fresh. We would probably do the same thing, but not the Lord. In spite of their failure, he comes to them and gets in this little boat with them. He had every excuse to say, look, it's kind of crowded in there. I think I'll walk. No, he doesn't. Because he's communicating to them, when you fail, don't run. You can't run from me. Where shall you go to flee from my presence? Psalm 139. I'm, I've been aware of all of this. I'm aware of what was going on in your heart. Peter, James, John, I know it all. Don't run. I'm not running from you. Your failure attracts me, and I'm coming to help you. It's amazing how the failure of these men sort of draws Jesus to them. No frustration, no anger. He mercifully gets in the boat with them despite it all. It's really something. And, and what's amazing, too, is that he does this again and again and again and again. We just get three years you know, in a book form, 16 chapters in Mark. But man, he was with these guys night and day, morning by morning, hour by hour, we just get some of their failures. But the Lord stuck with them all along. And by the end of it all, what had they become? Well, one of them turned from the Lord, which is a tragedy. But 11 turned the world upside down. Endured all sorts of trials. Fearlessly, you look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, I know he wasn't one of the twelve here, but you look at the Apostle Paul and you think, how in the world is this man able to do what he did? Of course, he had learned. He had learned obedience through the things he suffered, just like the Lord. So that's one thing. But notice also that the Lord steps, as soon as, rather, the Lord steps into the boat, what happens to the wind? It stops immediately. That's really miracle number two. The first miracle, walking on water. And now all of a sudden, he gets in the boat and it's perfectly calm. It's almost as if like the simulation is over. The trial's over. I'm in the boat. You failed. It's okay. You can, hit, you can stop it. Now let's talk about how you blew it just now. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't even have to say anything to the wind. It knows what to do. And it stops and the Lord demonstrates His perfect power and authority over all things 
as a lesson, an object lesson for these men to look and say, okay, we'll never be afraid of anything again. <laughs> right? We're going to believe you. We're going to trust you. You can do anything. Miracle number three, Mark doesn't give us, but John tells us that as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, immediately, John 6, 21, the boat was on the land where they were going. Immediately. Which would have demonstrated for the disciples that this was really a test after all. Jesus didn't need them to row across the lake. Right? He could have teleported them in a moment. He could have done that. But he didn't do that because he wanted to give his men a test and a trial that would demonstrate for them what was going on in their hearts. And really to give them an opportunity to express faith. Now that's true of every trial we encounter. The Lord could make it easy. The Lord could teleport us to heaven now. And we say, Lord, please do it. But that's not what it is to learn in Christ's school. Christ has a very specific way of teaching all of us, His students, what it means to walk in faith. His methods are timeless and tested. They worked with these 12, with 11. And it's the same way our Lord works today. He trains His disciples, His students, not by giving them life on a bed of ease, but by perfectly staging trials for them to walk into and perfectly executing every dimension of the trial so that we have revealed to us what is going on within. Not so that we can fail again and again and be miserable, but so that we can, like Peter, fail, but get up and be strengthened and see that the Lord not only can multiply bread for the sheep, but He's in control of the wind and the waves and every storm, and He's always watching and he's always praying. Never, never, no matter the height, depth, darkness of the trial, never do you escape the all-seeing eye of the Lord. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's praying for you. And on top of that, he is present with us as we walk through it. So my prayer for all of us here is, is just that we would understand what it means to be a student of the Lord. He's the master teacher. Uh, it's His desire that we grow into conformity to His image. And because of that, He sends trials our way. And our job, when you have the flat, right, when you have the broken transmission, your job is not to just get through it. That's what the disciples were doing. Straining at the oars, right? Our job is to exercise faith in the God who is over the trial. And when we learn that, we can endure all sorts of difficulties with joy, just like the apostles before us, because we understand that this is just the way of the Master. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this insight into Christ's method for training us.
and for making us more like himself. We pray, Father, help us to look with fresh eyes on these truths. And Father, we pray that you would make us like Christ. Help us to believe, to trust you, and help us to grow. Not just get through the difficulties of life, but to come out on the other side more strengthened, more determined to be your faithful followers as we traverse life in a world marked by difficulties and pain. Help us all, Lord, we pray. Amen.